This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, nonprofit mergers are a trend that is increasing more and more, especially since COVID first started. Now, here's my question. Are mergers the wave of the future? I don't know about that, but I do think that many nonprofits are merging more now than ever, and especially ones that may live in an area where there is more than one nonprofit doing very similar work. Perhaps that nonprofit may benefit from joining forces in order to better serve their community. Well, here to talk all about mergers is my friend and colleague, Paul Bancroft. Paul is the executive director of the Sierra Community House, a nonprofit organization that is the result of four nonprofits merging together into one common mission. I'll ask Paul all about how this merger has worked or not worked and what some of his biggest challenges have been so far. Enjoy today's show. Well, Paul, it is so fun to have you on the show. Now, today, I want to get your insights on mergers in nonprofits. You know, I also want to talk a little bit about the unique challenges facing our mountain towns, which, of course, you and I are both serving in. And they do, I do think they form a microcosm, if you will, of how nonprofits are serving across the country. But I really want to focus in and hone in our time initially with mergers, because this is something, as I mentioned to you before off camera, that I have had guests on the show talking about how they believe that there will be more mergers in the future, particularly since of COVID. There's been a lot of nonprofits that have struggled to continue. And so therefore, one of the ways they stay going and keeping their mission strong is they have to merge with other nonprofits. Others have said, you know, merging with other nonprofits, it just makes more sense. And so donors want uh, nonprofits to come together in order to not reinvent the wheel and duplicate services. And so the organization you lead currently is a conglomeration, if I could say that, of four different nonprofits who have merged together. And so maybe just give for my listeners the quick summary of why you all merged together and how have you pulled it off so far? Yeah, thank you, Rob. And I just want to say it's a it's an honor to be here and I'm excited to have this conversation to you, with you and to be able to preach the gospel of nonprofit mergers because I'm a big yeah. fan. <laughs> I um, love it. <laughs> I, I would say kind of the quick and dirty is that um, in roughly about 2017, myself and three other executive directors came together to have a conversation about how we could take our working relationship, our collaborative relationship to the next level of the four organizations. The four organizations that merged were two different family resource centers, a domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse organization, and a hunger relief organization. And we have all had very collaborative relationships and worked very well for many, many years. Several of us moved into a, a shared space seven or eight years ago and really kind of began this journey towards what does true collaboration look like? And so fast forward to 2017, then into 27 or 2018, we really started talking about what does this take? What does this look like? How can we provide the best service possible for our community? And still addressing some of the barriers that even though we were under the same roof, we still felt like there were some barriers for folks to access services, whether it was you know differences in values down to referral processes and how we interact with somebody who might be in crisis. And so 
were able to procure some funding. We got some support or we had support from all of our collective boards to pursue these conversations. And we brought in a consultant who really helped lead the process and got us across the finish line. And so July 1st, 2019, we went live as Sierra Community House. And I will say that we really were intentional about creating a fifth organization. We didn't want it to feel like the largest of the four swallowed up the other three. We didn't want anything like that. We really, and that was really for a staff's perspective and for the board to say, no, we're creating this new entity and this new organization that's really going to serve at a much higher and much deeper level as we work within our community. Uh, that's interesting. Okay. So you, as opposed to just merging the four of you, and like I said, you were the biggest, you actually created a fifth organization that was a combination of all fours. I'm hearing that correct? Philosophically, yes. Okay. Right. Practice, yes. <laughs> we did keep our nonprofit status of the larger organization that had the most complex grants, but we, we, you know, we renamed the organization and that was really how we approached it was that, no, this is a new organization. This isn't just a new iteration of one of the existing And I think that that was really important for staff to feel as though they were helping build something new and not just falling under something that already existed. Okay, good to know. So as I mentioned, this is a trend that I think is going to continue just based on people that study this all over the country. This is happening more and more. So let's start with the resource challenge, right? Every nonprofit has a resource challenge at some level. I'm guessing then it either can be initially alleviated a little bit for the smaller organizations, but also then long-term, this could compound the issue, right? You have to raise even more money. Now you've got four organizations, so to speak, into one. Talk about the resource challenge that you've faced and how has that gone so far? Yeah, so we, you know, it's interesting when I would talk to people, donors and partners and funders prior to kind of going live, there was kind of this common response like, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll be much more efficient from administrative perspective. You don't need to have you know four bookkeepers and four of these things, but I, I have to remind I still do have to remind folks that more often than not, an organization, you know you have an executive director who might also be the CFO, who might also be human relations, who might Good also point. be fundraising. Yep. Uh-huh. And so to create this you know a larger entity, we had to scale up. And so we had to bring in positions and we had to really create a more robust administrative team to be able to oversee or or to manage the, the finances and the fundraising and the grants of this larger organization. And so, you know, we went live July of 2019 and then COVID hit, you know, seven, eight months later as we we're just getting our feet underneath us. Great um, timing, right? Great that, timing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and because of COVID, we really had to scale up to meet the need of the services. And so we had to bring in even even more staff across programs in order to to meet that need. One of the benefits that we felt immediately was when COVID hit and everything shut down, we immediately saw a huge increase in demand for our hunger relief program. And that was originally an organization of four or five people. That would have been a really big challenge had we not merged and they were trying to meet the need of our community during, during that time. And so we were able to pull staff across programs to really mobilize and support that program. And then we saw a huge uptick in demand for rental assistance and utility assistance. And you know, we couldn't we couldn't overnight triple the amount of advocates we had to be able to do that work. And so we had prevention staff doing processing rental checks across programs. So again, we were really able to mobilize across the across the greater organization in order to help meet those needs as they were just hitting us so quickly and and with such great demand for services. 
That's okay. That makes total sense. And I could relate to that leading my own nonprofit during COVID. There was that need for cross um, integration, if you will, of all a lot of different teams. And what great timing in, in many ways, honestly, as you look back, fortuitous almost that this organization came together right before COVID so that you could have that wider impact. Now, one of the things I'm sure has been one of the biggest challenges has been having everyone come together now with at one time, a separate mission, right, for each organization. And now you're coming together. You have a common one mission for the organization. How have you worked through that? What have been some of the barriers along the way? And how have you fostered that unity so that you really are focused as one organization on one mission? Yeah, that's a great question. And, I, and I'll start with saying we're still working on that. And we still have a long way to go because, like I said before, you know, COVID hit seven months into being an organization and everybody went home and we, everybody worked from home. And so it really slowed the process of kind of that cultural integration component. But leading up to that, we were, we were very intentional about that. We established a cultural integration committee that was across the organization, across programs, voluntary process to help guide that. They got going and then, you know, we went home. <laughs> And so it, it made it challenging, but we've put a lot of intention behind trying to create this larger understanding of what this new mission is. And well, here, let me back up. And our mission is to connect and empower our communities through family strengthening, crisis intervention, hunger relief, and legal services. So we essentially took the core of the four emerging organizations and turned them into our mission. So nice. we all buy into the larger mission because it supports the, you know, what those previous missions were. Um, and so when, when talking about kind of moving staff along, I, I think we've done a lot of different things over the last couple of years to help ensure that folks are moving along and embracing the, the larger mission and feeling like they're a part of something bigger than what the previous organization was. And we, we have a, you know, a lot of different committees. We have a, an experiences committee. We have a peaks and valleys committee. All these different committees are, are intentionally open across all programs, across all levels of the org chart to really help people getting to work together, building relationships, having a deeper understanding of the different programs. We've created a leadership team, which is managers and directors across the entire organization, and we meet monthly. And so, you know, it's a lot of meetings and it's a lot of talking through it, but it's, it's, it's absolutely critical. And I think we've done a pretty good job around that. And like I said before, we, we still, we still have a ways to go. And, you know, one of the consultants we brought on at the beginning of this process, she works for an organization that emerged. And at that point she said, you know, we're nine years into our merger and we're still working on the cultural integration of it. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Wow. Okay. That's realistic. It's it's not, yeah, it's not something that happens overnight and you have to be really intentional about it and, and, and name it. And as issues come up, we try to address those issues and we try to figure out collectively, okay, how are we going to you know, address this issue collectively as a team, as an organization? And, and some of it is like when we created our employee handbook for the new organization, we invited staff input and it like turned into this, they set up like a treasure hunt through the handbook to encourage folks to participate and read it and get engaged with it. I mean, that sounds so boring and kind of like, checking boxes and very um, transactional in terms of, you know, nonprofit culture, but as much voice buy-in participation as we can get across the board from staff, the better. And we'll, we'll continue helping us as we continue to improve the cultural integration of programs and the previous organizations. 
Now, all that makes sense. Well said, and sounds like you're doing a good job, but I also appreciate the realism that, yeah, you're still working on that. It may take another seven, eight years to really, truly integrate. And I think that's probably realistic. All right. Now to donors that have supported these organizations, I always think that could be interesting, right? So on, on the one hand, donors may be, oh, good. We now are combined. We're going to really be efficient with our resources. But I also wonder, you know, would the donors be as excited now that they're one organization and maybe one aspect of one mission, maybe the food security issue becomes the primary thing now for the organization. They're not quite as interested because they were more interested in, uh, say, the uh, legal advice or providing legal services. How has that been with your donors? Have you kept donors? Have you actually added more donors or has that been a bit a bit of a challenge to make sure they're on board too with the common mission now with all four organizations merging together i think it's a, a multi-layered question with a multi-layered response as we add covid into that and so one of the things that we did as we were leading up to the merge is all four executive directors met with their major donors and funders and had this conversation with them of this is what we're planning on doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's our vision for this. And trying to be as transparent as possible and also to help keep moving them along and investing in the new organization. When we first merged the first few months, I think we saw a, you know, an uptick in donations because people were really excited about it and really got behind the idea of like, this makes so much sense. To have four organizations come together, they're all social services. It, it feels good. It makes sense from a service delivery standpoint. And so, you know, we might have lost a few along the way who just felt like kind of their smaller core interests or passions might get lost in in the greater or, you know, and so, and that's okay. Um, But I think ultimately we picked up new donors. And then when COVID hit, you know, I think a lot of us in, in our roles were wondering, well, what does this mean for fundraising and funding in those early days of the shutdown? And I was really concerned that, you know, what's this going to mean for investments and, you know, the stock market and are donors really going to, are they going to close up their wallets or or what's this going to look like? And I was, you know, so pleasantly surprised and just, we received an influx of donations that we did not anticipate to help serve the community. And I think one of the um, benefits of merging was people were donating to one organization that was serving a huge breadth of the community and and a, in a much broader spectrum of services. So they didn't have to choose, well, I want to serve, I want to support hunger relief, but I also want to support, you know, domestic violence services. They could just donate to one organization and know that we would provide those services. And so it really was a silver lining for us in merging when we did merge. And so, and then we also saw, and, and this is kind of connected to that mountain town question as well, or conversation is, Prior to COVID, I think 65% of the housing in, in Tahoe Truckee is was second homes, many of them vacant 90% of the year. Some of them were used as you know rentals for families and individuals. And like I never figured out how to kind of appeal and approach and cultivate second and third homeowners and encourage them to invest in their second and third their vacation communities and just never really figured out how to do that. And with COVID, it was the first time we really started seeing those folks donating, not only in their primary community, which for many is the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, Sacramento area, but also in Tahoe. And as we've seen, you know, yeah. And so like many mountain town communities, we have become a Zoom town where a lot of people moved into their second homes and then invested in our services because 
you know, they were start tr- wanting to get involved and wanting to engage and, and, and donate. So it's really, it's, it's been fascinating to see how that works. One challenge that we've seen that, you know, I don't know if we anticipated this when we were initially going through this process, but, you know, and this relates to some of our donors, even some of our foundations, but let's say a donor gave 5,000 to two of the original four organizations. When we merge, that donor might now go, well, now I'm just going to give five to the larger organization. And so we had to provide some, we had to provide some education of like, well, actually, you know, how about 15, you know, and, and same, same with some foundations where we would apply and historically, you know, one organization might apply for 10, another might apply for five, depending on what their needs were. And, and now we're applying for this larger organization, you know, and maybe we're applying for 40 or 50 K now, which would kind of meet where we were originally. And it's like, oh my gosh, this, you know, this feels like it's too much and going, well, actually it's just reflective of the larger organization. So, you know, there's been some education that we've, that we've done and lots of conversations with donors to, and, and, and partners to kind of move along. But, but by and large, it's been overwhelmingly positive. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Arts Midwest. They have launched a new podcast called Filling the Well. The Filling the Well podcast has been created to nourish, provoke, and inspire. Hear from creative changemakers as they share their takes on how to shift power, avoid burnout, build community, share resources, and advocate for support. You can visit artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Again, that's artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Now, again, well done. And that, that's got to be difficult. And uh, I could see that where, yeah, on the one hand, donors may say, well, I used to give yeah, 500 and 500. Now I'm, I'm going to give 500 to one organization. So you actually cut the gift in half in a sense, right? So good job on cultivating those donors. All right, programs. You already kind of mentioned this a little bit, how certain programs, obviously during a response like COVID, you had to do certain things and you probably shut down certain services, but then really had to enhance other services. Now that as COVID is dissipating a little bit, are you seeing this pull where there's maybe a competition between programs? In other words, uh, is the hunger relief side of things really trying to clamor for even more expansion, more growth? And then how do you do that with some of the other things you're trying to do? How has that been to manage kind of the expectations of we want to grow, we want to expand, we want to provide more services and programs, but we have to run it through a bigger filter now because it's one, again, organization is not just one department focus on one issue. How's that been with the program side? It's been an evolution. And I think that each time we go through the process, it gets a little tighter, a little cleaner. 
and it and it is slower than I think what all of us were accustomed to previous to merging and being for smaller organizations. It involves a lot more conversation, a lot more analysis. So if you know, we have an ongoing grant finance meetings, we have ongoing personnel committee meetings. And so, you know, if a program says, hey, we need to bring in two more staff members, okay, great. And so we'll bring we'll bring in folks from finance and from grants and from the program and myself and you know our deputy ed and and we'll look at we'll do the financial analysis and we'll look at you know what can we support what is that you know let's look at the data behind the need that's being requested and and can we feasibly you know ultimately pull it off and that that's the perennial challenge i think as executive director as ceo as a leadership team is that balance of i mean we could keep growing and growing and growing but we also want to be sustainable and we don't know what the you know, economic future looks like. We don't know what is coming down the road one, two, three years from now. So trying to find that balance and making sure that we're meeting the needs of the community first and foremost, but doing it in a fiscally responsible and, and sustainable way. No, that's helpful. Okay, good. Well, now, as you mentioned, uh, we're both serving in mountain town uh, communities, resort communities. And, you know, my listeners may think, well, then that's not very relevant to me. But what I've found is, particularly as I've talked to leaders across the country, what we're experiencing in our mountain towns is kind of a microcosm, really, again, as I mentioned earlier, of what's happening across the country. And one example would be just this growing split between those that are high income and those that are low income, that that uh, disparity, if we will, is getting wider and wider in the mountain towns that we serve, but that's happening across our country. And I think the whole conversation about social justice and DEI work, all of those things also are very much in play in mountain towns because oftentimes I know for like Park City and it sounds like in Tahoe similar, a lot of the people that keep the restaurants going and the hotels going that would be considered low income in our community are part of the Latinx community. So there's also a racial element to this. And so there's a lot of different challenges that we're facing again on maybe a smaller population scale, but we're seeing that across the country. So maybe talk a bit about that with your unique challenges. What are those challenges you're seeing? How are you overcoming them? And are there some unique things that maybe you're finding some solutions to that might apply to some of my listeners that live in other parts of the country? Yeah. I think that the biggest challenge that we're faced with, which is not, we're not alone in, it's a universal challenge is housing. It's a, we have a very acute housing crisis in Tahoe, Truckee, and that's the case in across the country and in many mountain towns. But um, I think you're right. Maybe it's earlier in the wave. <laughs> we feel it and we feel it more acutely. And, and the disparity, I mean, or I've seen and heard in multiple places, I haven't verified this, but during the pandemic, the zip code for Truckee, California was the most searched on Zillow for relocation purposes. So is that right? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we had, we've had a lot of people pushed out of our community. And like I mentioned earlier, we have um, this abundance, uh, we have this abundance of second homes that were vacant a lot. Many of them were, were functioning as part of our, as the rental market and families and individuals had, had been living in them and renting in them. But when the owners decided, well, we can work remotely now and we're going to leave our home in the Bay Area because we want to be in the mountains because why wouldn't you want to be in the mountains? Exactly. It's beautiful. <laughs> and so pushed a lot of people out. And so, you know, we, we're coming up on probably close to a million dollars in rental assistance that we've provided since the start of COVID. And like, I view that as keeping people in our community and doing what we can to continue that financial support to ensure that people can continue to live here. And because we, we need everybody here and we need the folks who are serving and who 
work at the ski areas and doing landscaping. They are the fabric of the community and their kids are in schools. And so, and a lot of folks are being foot pushed to Reno and Carson City. That's kind of our, like the next stop of quote unquote affordable living, but that's not affordable anymore either. So I think that that's the biggest issue we're finding. And we were very fortunate in that one of our community foundations started a mountain housing council. And so it's a lot of stakeholders, it's county, it's town, it's nonprofits, it's folks in real estate who are really looking at trying to find solutions to this. And Truckee, for example, over the last few years has built an incredible amount of new units that are affordable. And it's still not enough. The wait list for affordable housing is multiple years before you can get in. And so housing is the ongoing conversation. I think in addition to that is access to mental health services, and in particular, mental health services for Spanish speakers. We have one, maybe two Spanish-speaking mental health providers in our region, and that that doesn't cut it. And that just is not enough and not meeting the need that is there. And so we hear regularly the need for more Spanish-speaking mental health providers to be able to support our community. And then for us, another challenge is We have unique geography in North Lake Tahoe, Truckee, where we have these county, we have two states that come together, and then we have three to four different counties that all intersect. But the seat of government and the the main services are all at least an hour, either east or west. And when it's snowing, you're going over passes in either direction, and you might not be able to get there. So it does tend to create a, a challenge in accessing services and for folks to get the support we need. And I think that is can be unique to rural mountain towns. Um, is access and and being able to to get those services that are needed. No, I think all three of those housing, mental health, and particularly Spanish speaking mental health, and then access to services huge and just transportation here in Park City, the Greater Park City, Greater Salt Lake area, same kind of issues. Absolutely, we are a little lucky in that we're closer to a major city, you know, right in our our backyard, so to speak. But um, otherwise, very similar issues. And for my listeners, Paul and I are part of the Mountain Town Coalition, where we work with uh, other nonprofits throughout the country. You know, from Sun Valley, Jackson Hole, Breckenridge, etc. And these same themes are true across the board. And what's interesting is now we're seeing this across the country in big cities, small towns across the board. I mean, housing is a big issue. Mental health is a big issue. Spanish speaking resources, big issue. So thank you for that. Now, the fact that you've merged with four organizations, I'm assuming my initial thought would be that would help you serve more people in this resort setting. But it, has there been any drawbacks in coming together? So maybe what I'm getting at here is, you know, I've talked about the trend is there's more organizations merging, but what are the drawbacks? Like what have been the negative parts of coming together? Maybe if there is any. It's not an easy process. It requires commitment from all players involved. And you do lose some sense of identity, I think. And, you know, like in particular, you know, we had two family resource centers, which are part of a family resource center movement, which is, you know, really profound in, in particular in California. And we had a domestic violence sexual assault organization that was very much involved with the domestic violence and sexual assault movements across multiple states. And I think that there can be a sense of loss in that as things kind of, you know, I don't know if they get muddy, but because you have this kind of greater vision and this greater view of services that you're providing, there might not be as much capacity to put the focus in to those movements, to that sense of feeling like you're a part of a movement or part of something larger or like that. So 
I, you know, definitely have sensed that from staff. Th- some things go away when you merge. Some practices go away. And not, you know, not only do you have to celebrate the birth of this new organization, but I think you also have to promise, practice and acknowledge the loss because there is a loss. And, you know, one thing that I heard a lot of initially is at one time we're four EDs and now there's one. And some of those smaller organizations had instant access to their executive director because they only, they had one site, they were all in a small office and it was, they really appreciated having that. And now we're spread out over four or five offices and it just feels different. And I think for some folks, it feels big and, and that's real. And we don't ever try to deny or, or minimize that feeling that like we lost this little teeny, our, our little core work community, and we're now we're a bigger entity. You know, we try to do everything we can to maintain that, you know, the nonprofit feel that, you know, it, we haven't gone corporate by any means, but yeah, there, there are processes that are now in place that are new for folks that prior to merging, they, they didn't have to go through this process. It was a lot easier to get things done a lot quicker. And now it involves more approvals. And so, you know, those are the growing pains, I think, of a growing organization and different, different cultures coming together and different practices. But um, I think that, you know, again, we take it day by day. And as those issues arise, where I, I hope and feel as though we're as transparent and engaging as possible to try to address those to come up with solutions and figure out, okay, this isn't working. How do we come together to moving forward to improve upon? Or you know, maybe we discard that completely because it didn't work with anyone, but help us create the new process or, or the new approach to whatever that might be. So I like that. And overall, you would say this has been worth it. The impact you've been able to have now is greater and the overall good, if you will, has been worth it so far. Would you say that? Absolutely. Yeah. I I think we're serving uh, about 45% more people now than we were right before COVID. And so then we saw a big increase in demand for services. And, you know, we're kind of hovering right around the 44, 45% increase. And as a team, as a collective, as as an organization, we've figured out how to do that. And I don't see that number dropping in the near future. So I, I absolutely believe, I'm convinced that it was the right thing to do and that we're providing better services, not the best yet, but better services, more comprehensive services. You know, somebody comes in for for one thing and rather than being referred out to another organization, you know, if, if they come in for hunger relief and they disclose there's domestic violence and there's financial assistance needed, they're not then having to fill out a referral form and go to another office. It's all happening within one organization. And I think that there is inherent value in mitigating as many barriers as possible for the community to be able to access our services. No, that's great. Well, again, congratulations on that and uh, look forward to keep checking in to see how your progress is moving forward. Now, maybe one last question for those who are listening. Maybe they're at a place where like you were a few years ago, you have these organizations you're working very closely with, you're doing a lot of collaboration already. What would you recommend if you were a coach, what would you say are the key signs to say you ought to move from just collaborating to seriously thinking about merging? Are there certain themes? Were there litmus tests, if you will? Were there boxes that you that were, you know, if you check these three boxes, yes, you should seriously consider merging. What would you recommend to my listeners that maybe feel like they're they may be it may be time for them to merge with other organizations? I love that question. Um, and, and this my response might sound a little cliche, but I I stand by it and I believe it hundred <laughs> percent. Right. The first conversation that the four executive directors, myself included, had 
And I must mention that we had a very important partner with us who's the director of our community collaborative who kind of held the space for us and brought us all together. And she's been been there from day one. But our, our first meeting, it was so clear to me that egos were left at the door. And what was on the table was how do we best serve our community? How do we best serve our communities and our staff as well? How do we create, sorry, how do we provide or create a better product? And I, I think that that is what allowed us to, to move this forward in, in the way that we were able to do. Nobody was clamoring for any position or power or at least, you know, that never surfaced. It never came out, but I really don't think it did. I really think that it was a genuine approach to taking our, our service delivery model to the next level. I also think that our situation was a little bit unique, and this comes up in a lot of conversations around mergers. All four organizations were coming at it from a place of strength. So mergers can happen that way. They also frequently happen when one organization or entity is struggling and another comes in to kind of help lift them up or just take them over to ensure that the services are delivered and they don't go out of business or or those services go away. I can't speak to that experience because I haven't gone through that. We're fortunate in that for us, the four organizations were, you know, in a in a place of financial strength, you know, structurally we're all doing well. And so we were really able to think about it in a way we weren't coming at it from deficit thinking, but it was from abundance. And how 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 do we make this better rather than kind of a rescue mission? So I think that that's important. It doesn't mean it, it you know, it can't happen the other way when somebody is struggling. I also think that especially in smaller communities, there was a lot of overlap with individuals and families that the three or four of the organizations were serving. And so it just made it less confusing and clear for an access perspective to go to one organization. And there wasn't this confusion of like, well, those guys over there kind of do that and they do that over there. So where am I supposed to go? It's just come to this office. And, and it was helpful. And and maybe this goes earlier in the fundraising part, but from a funding perspective, another benefit was, you know, when COVID hit, we had a lot of county funding from various county partners. And so it quickly became, we need to provide this funding in our communities where we're going to provide it to Sierra Community House. Whereas before it would have had to go two or three different channels, divvy it up, figure out, you know, all those different processes and approvals and all that. And instead it just went to one entity okay, here's how you're going to do it. Great. Okay, perfect. And we'll execute on the funding. So not only did it mitigate decision-making or confusion for donors, but I think it really helped a lot of our funding partners as well, especially at the county level. Well, again, thank you for sharing your insights. I have a feeling people were want to reach out to you, find out a little bit more about your organization, but also maybe reach out to you. What's the best way they can either connect with you or your organization? So our website is Sierra Community House. Org. And on there, you can read about our merger process on our impact report. It's a, a really nice visual storytelling tool for how we went from four EDs having a conversation to where we are today. So that's on there. And then folks are more than welcome to send me an email at pbancroft at sierracommunityhouse.org. That's awesome. Well, good. Well, Paul, again, thanks for what you're doing. I know you're doing good work because I've, I've gotten to know you now uh, for a couple of years and it's been fun to see your growth, but it'll be interesting to see how it grows even more. And then I have a sense that you're going to be, this won't be your last interview because I think mergers are going to be a trend of the future and uh, you've done it and so far successfully. So thanks for sharing your insights and spending time today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. 
Hey friends, well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.